0: You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Yes, Lord, we sing of the worthiness of who you are. And God, I pray this morning our hearts would be captured by the essence of your nature. That God, these wouldn't just be words coming off of our lips, but God, would you open our eyes to see how wonderful and how glorious and how majestic and how beautiful and how worthy you really are today. And as we see the vastness of our God, we recognize that, oh, we are so unworthy. And yet, because of Jesus, we can sing the excellencies of your praise. We can offer you not just our our song this morning. We can offer you our lives, God, because of your worthiness. We can offer you, God, our, our time and our money, God, and our talents. And this morning, God, because of your worthiness, we want to offer you our everything. And we say, oh God, take our lives and do with them as you please. God, we offer you our ears right now in this moment. Speak to us, God. We came here today not just to sing a couple songs and hear a nice homily. We came here today to hear from you, oh God. And your words are so much worthy than ours. And so we come eager this morning, God. We come expectant. And Lord, all we want today is that you would cause us to know your heart and your purposes for our lives and that you would strengthen us simply to live it out. That we might show the world how worthy you are by the way that we live our lives. And so God, protect us from just simply coming and putting in an hour and thinking that we're done. But God, use this to spur us on to a life proclaiming the worthiness of our God. We love you this morning, Lord, not because we're so awesome, but because you first loved us and sent your son to die on the cross that all this is possible. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take a seat this morning and turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah uh, chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. I'll give you a few seconds to get there. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, slip up your hand and let one of our ushers uh, give you a copy of not just any book, but God's Word. And uh, let this be our gift to you. If you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take it and read it and uh, seek to know the Lord through it. And we know when you seek Him, you will find Him. So take uh, the book with you. But Jonah chapter 4 is where we're at today. As you get there, let me give you a little brief summary of where we've been. For those of you who are maybe just joining us today uh, after missing maybe for some summer holidays just being here for the first time. So Jonah is a book about a little prophet, a little stubborn prophet uh, who is running from God. And yet God in his grace and in his sovereignty, he finally corrals this guy and he gets him back focused on where he wants him to go. And he actually goes to the place God called him to go and preach the gospel. He goes and, and when he goes and preaches to the city called Nineveh, God actually causes a revival to break out. And God calls a whole city to repentance and to be changed by the power of God. It's pretty a amazing, pretty amazing story so far, isn't it? Isn't it amazing to see what God can do with the po- God's power can do with a life that is fully yielded to Him? We see it in Jonah and we're like, wow, God, that's awesome. And we even see what happened in Nineveh last week. Remember this sinful city, this city that's so wicked and away from God? We see what God did in Nineveh. We're like, wow, that's amazing, God. Would you, you, you can do that here. Why wouldn't you do that here, God? Please do that here. Please cause people to know you like that here. Please cause people here to have a new lease on life and a new relationship with God and new hope for the future. It left us fired up last week. What could God do in our lives and through our lives? And so we think, the way the whole story goes, that this is going to nicely wrap up with a bow, right? And so God's finally got Jonah. He preaches the message. Everybody repents. And Jonah must be on top of the world, right? Right? He must be like pumped. He must be fired up. Surely Jonah is dancing in the streets. What is a prophet? What is his prophet's main goal? Preach the word of God. What's the prophet's main desire? See people respond to God. So we can picture now that at this point we think, we think Jonah would be the guy, who'd be tweeting all his little prophets back home and all his little friends going, hey, guess what God did in Nineveh? This is awesome. We'd think Jonah would be like selfie time, you know, get the whole weeping city behind him, like you know, Facebook, what did God do? Think about it. Jonah must be cloud nine. All that God did to rescue him from running his own way. And he brought him into the belly of a whale to spit him back out. And yet we see as we get to chapter four, Jonah's filled with emotion, all right. But it's not the emotion that we would expect. Just as we think we have this book finally figured out, yet another unexpected. This whole book is full of unexpected. God's an unexpected God, is he not? And we find another unexpected, I want to read it for you, and I'm going to help you understand this. And I think it's an unexpected in many ways, but when you know your own heart and your own sinfulness, it's an expected, because I think if you're honest with me, you and I can relate a lot more with Jonah than we'd like to admit. Let me read Jonah chapter 4 to us, and let us learn the lessons from this prophet, that we might not walk in his ways, but instead walk in the ways of Jesus. Little subtitle here is this, Jonah's anger and the Lord's compassion. But, after all this has gone down, but, you know, that's going to be a like, uh uh-oh. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? This dude's hard to figure out, is he not? And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Oh, the truth is coming out. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why I ran away. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Really? Here's God's answer. Remember, God's full of grace. Here's his answer. He doesn't get mad. He just, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Jonah's so ticked he doesn't even respond. So Jonah goes out out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Things are falling into place, right? But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And then when the sun rose, God appointed a point of scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Thinking by now Jonah would get it, right? Jonah's response, man, he is stubborn. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Thank you very much. And the Lord said, like, can you imagine the Lord's heart in this? You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, and it came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? And then the book ends. Is that the way you thought this thing was going to end? At chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3? Unless you read it before and you're like, I know how this is going to end, right? Right? Even if you read it before, it's a little bit shocking, isn't it? It's a little bit unexpected. It's a little like, what is going on here? Until we stop and really take a good look at our own hearts and we realize that, man, it's not too hard to understand because I am more like Jonah than I'd like to admit. My heart is so fickle, it's so up and it's so down. And and even when it comes to things of God, oftentimes I think I know best. I think I know what's right. And yet we fail to see that we serve a God whose way is always right. We are seldom right. God is always right. And so let's unpack this a little bit and just learn some valuable lessons that I think God has for not just your heart, but for my heart as I wrestle through this every week. Here's the first thing I think we want to learn. I know we need to learn, not think we want to, know we need to learn from the book of Jonah, from Jonah chapter 4. What's going on here? Here's a a simple first reality. What's going on here? Jonah is so consumed with himself, he misses out on God's heart. Isn't this true of all of us? I can be so consumed with myself that I miss out on God's heart. It's what he wants to do in the world around me. Here's Jonah. Here's Jonah. This is Jonah. He had all the head knowledge, but he had zero heart knowledge. And he blatantly fires back at God. He's he, Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. thinking this would be like a highlight reel. I'm thinking we're in this case. Man, if, if I'm preaching to 120,000 people, they all fall on their faces before the Lord. Like I'm thinking that's a win. Jonah comes at it from this. He blatantly fires back at God for God's goodness. He's ticked that God is good. Instead of rejoicing, Jonah gets angry. And so now we're starting to, starting to make a little more sense the whole book now, right? Remember that whole one-line sermon he preached? And we're like, why would he preach a one-line sermon? Because he didn't want them to repent. Why did he not add the hope of the gospel? Because he was hoping that they would actually come up. and He was hoping to see the fireworks go off. And so we see that even the sermon that he preached, it wasn't really about him, it was about his faithfulness. God actually took this guy's, like, ill intent and used it for good. Jonah was actually hoping God was going to curse Nineveh. So this little passionate preacher really had a whole bunch of underlying false desires in his heart, and so much so that... Chapter 4, verse 1 has really translated this in the original language. It was evil to Jonah with great evil what God had done. He hated what God had done. And so, remember our parents used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Well, Jonah didn't get that because instead of just keeping this in, he now expresses it to the Lord. Let's so look at his prayer in chapter, in, in chapter 4, verse 2. And so he's, he's angry. and He starts expressing it to the Lord in the form of a prayer. This is Jonah just like bare bones, no hiding, no pretending. He's just expressing his heart to the Lord. And we see how ugly it really is because it's so different than chapter 2. Remember when God saved him and Jonah says, heart of worship. Now he's like a heart of lament and a heart of complaining. And look what his prayer is. He addresses it, O oh Lord, but it's really not about God. It's about him. O oh Lord... Is this not what I said when it was yet in my country? <laughs> this is why I ran away, God, because I knew, that I knew that you're these things, that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember, we're trying to decide, why, why is he running? Well, you know why he was running? Because he knew that God was everything he said he was, and he knew in his own heart, he determined that the people of Nineveh did not deserve God. And he's like this... this Grumpy little kid, right? Isn't it just like you, God? Is what he's saying. It wasn't just like you, God, all all gracious and merciful. But don't you realize that these are the the evil ones, not the good ones? Don't you realize that they're opposed to you and not for you? Like somehow he got the character of God, but he missed the heart of God. Somehow he even knew his Bible, but he missed the heart of God because this this. Uh, verse here. You know what he's really doing? He's, qu- he's quoting almost word for word Exodus 34, 6. He's talking about God's character and how God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knew the word of God. He's quoting from scripture. He's quoting from Exodus. He's, this is almost the same thing that said in Joel, the Joel, the prophet almost says the exact same thing in Joel two thirteen. write them down and look them up. Nehemiah, the prophet's Reminds the people that God is so merciful and gracious. Psalm 103 verse 8 says the same thing. We know that God's merciful, right? Jonah knew that God was merciful. Jonah knew God. He knew God all right. It wasn't wasn't a matter at all of Jonah. Like, I'm not not sure if he had a... He didn't have a brain cramp. Like, is God really merciful? He he knew right well God was merciful. And in his heart, he resented the fact that God was going to be merciful to somebody else other than him and his people. He knew God doesn't like to punish. It's not his favorite thing in the world to wake up and want to punish. He knows that God's not sitting on his throne going like, I can't wait to hand out the next life sentence. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait to hand out the death penalty. Jonah got it here, but he missed it Here. Got it for himself. Chapter 2, we see that he fully grasped the grace of God. He saved me. Thank you. You're so wonderful. He missed it for everybody else. And now he's begging God to take his life. What is going on? You ever wonder, like, what is going on in this man's mind and heart? We see it in the text. You might not see it right away by looking at it, but we see it in the text. I study this. I know exactly what's going on in Jonah's mind and heart. How do you know? I'm not smarter than you. I just saw it in the text. You know what it says in the text? Seven times in this prayer. You know what it refers to? Me, myself, and I. He might have addressed his prayer to the Lord, but really, is this prayer about the Lord at all? It's about himself. Read it with me. Encircle them. Oh, Lord, this is what I said when... I was yet in my country. This is why I made haste, because you're so good and so awesome and so gracious. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Here's Jonah's reality. This is what set this whole book off when God came to him with a mission. Jonah was so self-absorbed. He was so focused on self-protection and self-interest and self-motivation and self-promotion that he had absolutely zero time for the heart of God or in having a heart for others. Jonah was more interested in what God was going to do for him instead of what God wanted to do through him. So consumed with this idea that I've shared it before, the whole sermon series, that, that God, you're you're the Israelite God. You're for us, nobody else. Like let's hold you and, and keep you close and, and protect and keep you for ourselves. Maybe it's the fact that, that Jonah knew that the Assyrians' lot in life was to take down the, the Israelites. So he just he just knew that if this would happen, that it would be detrimental to him. Maybe even this, maybe his reputation was at stake. Remember, he preached that like God's gonna destroy you in 40 days? what happens when a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come true? Right? All the other prophets are like, well, it's really Jonah. They're going to question his his position and his integrity and, and it's going to look bad for him. And all he's wrapped up in is me, myself, and I. He clearly got the character of God. He clearly got the word of God, but he missed the heart of God. Here's what becomes so important for us. Here's what becomes so important for us in our day, in our age, in 2016 in North America, where we're taught from as soon as we get to the school years, we're taught that the world revolves around who? Me. Doesn't matter what anyone thinks as long as I know and care about what I think. Here's what's important. You know why it's important? that we read all of the Bible, not just parts of it, because this is, I believe, a running commentary on what most of us have to fight or will fall into every single day. Get the character of God. Get the word of God, but miss the heart of God because we're so consumed with ourselves being the center of the universe that we become selfish and short-sighted and miss the, com- can completely miss the heart of God for others. Be honest with yourself for a minute. Do you really believe that you have God's complete heart for others and a burden for the loss and a burden and compassion for other people? Or do you think that more often that you walk through life so conformed to the world that your heart is no different than anybody else's apart from saying you believe in Jesus? I'm not the super spiritual guy up here. I, I find myself in that place Often. <laughs> My days, your days, can be spent worrying about me and what's happening here. And our prayers focused on, like, God, be with me and bless me and take care of me and watch out for me and thank you for saving me and, and getting all the me's in there. That we totally miss the heart of God. In North America, for some reason, we pack, package the faith as this. It's just a me and God faith. It's just me and God. It's just me and God. Biblically, is it just a me and God faith? No. If we have God, we have the heart of God, and we live the heart of God as we go throughout the world. In fact, if it's a biblical faith, it's not a me and God faith. It's a thank you, God, for saving me faith. Now use me in the lives of other people faith. Let me ask you this. How often do you, in a day, in a week, in a month, plan your days around others rather than yourself? How often a day, in a week, in a month... Think of how God is going to use you and other people's lives, rather than wondering how God is going to impact your life. It's easy to get down on Jonah and be like, "What a punk, man! How does he not get it?" As I studied this week. I sat before the God, before God, saying, "God, how do I not get it? God, would you give me your heart again for people?" Would you help me see the world like you see it? Not just on a Sunday morning for an hour, but for real, that my life would be changed, by that I would be not so consumed with myself that I'd be living for others. Protect me, God. Protect our church, I'm praying. Often protect our church from becoming this complacent, all about me, faith. Because if that's us today, we miss the heart of God. And if we miss the heart of God... We miss the presence of God. We miss the presence of God. We miss the purposes of God. Point number two, you have to point and see in this text is simply this. So God's going to show us through most of this chapter, it's the purposes of God that matter, not mine. It's God's purposes that matter, not mine. You or I, in God's place, what would you do to Jonah at this point? You're like, okay, I've had enough, right? Enough, but is that how God responds to Jonah in verse 4? No, God's so gracious and so loving and so patient with even his own. Look what he says in, in verse 4. So God's trying to gently correct Jonah, get him to look at his own heart and see his own foolish ways with the question. Like Instead of saying, like Jonah, you're wrong, I like, get it together. He's like, hey, Jonah, let me ask you a question. This, this is, deep breath, deep breath, deep breath. Let me ask you a question. Do you do well to be angry? Really, what he's saying is stop and take a good look at what really is coming off of your lips and in your heart. And is this really, really right? Do you think this is really right? Again, God giving Jonah some grace to maybe figure it out on his own and have a moment of repentance himself rather than seeing a whole whole city repent. Jonah is so angry. Jonah is so angry. He doesn't even give God the time of day. You know what he does? He storms off like a stubborn... "Ah." He storms off to the outskirts of the city. He finds a bunch of shrubbery and sticks and whatever. He builds himself a little hut. And he has a little protest against God. This is what's going on here. You know those sit-ins, those tent city sit-ins they have outside parliament places and stuff? And they're like, we're going to have a sit-in. We're going to prove our point. This is what Jonah's doing to God. How foolish, isn't it? So Jonah's having a little sit-in. He's going to wait and see what God is going to do with the city. In the translation, he's hoping God changes his mind from grace and actually brings down the fire shell he's going to show God that he's serious about this. And he's going to wait until God does it. And yet God being so wise, he never wastes teachable moments in our lives. You know that, right? He's not about to waste this teachable moment in Jonah's life that he wants to use in our lives this morning. And so God's about to do a little object lesson using Jonah as the main character to help him see the fullness of what God's heart and God's purposes are. And so God does to Jonah in the next few verses what Jonah wanted him to do to Nineveh. And so in verse 6, he's sitting under this shade, waiting to see what's going to happen in verse 6. God just shows up again and appoints a plan and made it come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. And so Jonah, it says here, was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So in the midst of this little protest... God's still with us, kids, right? Even when we have our little pout fest. Little grace, you know, a little plant sprouts up. It's probably a castor bean plant which grow up to 12 feet long in in desert climates, 12 12 feet high in desert climates. A bunch of leaves, like a little, real good shade, you know. It's it's still a miracle. Like, those things don't pop up overnight, but God allowed it to pop up overnight and shade him. It's also one of the plants that if the stalk gets damaged at all, it just comes down as quick as it goes up. That's why we probably think it's a bean caster. So all of a sudden, Jonah's back in the happies, right? Oh, God, you still love me. That's right. I still am yours. You're still for me and not them. And I know this means it's all going to go down now the way that I expected. And so he's all, it says here, exceedingly glad. You know, that means he's deliriously happy. Like, really deliriously happy over a plant. Like, this is, a, this is absurd, is it not? Have we seen Jonah deliriously happy yet? No, he's pretty excited about the whale thing, right? Pretty exciting, but not deliriously happy. See the irony of it all. See the irony of it all. God was going to bring uh, the heat from heaven in judgment and incinerate Nineveh. Jonah, meh, cares. Little hot sun. It's who's he thinking about? Little hot sun on his pretty little face. Little shade. Dance of joy. He's like missing it. But he thinks he's all good. Gets a little relief from the sun. Then verse 7, it's short-lived though, verse 7. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed, you can circle every time it says God appointed in these verses, it's important, we're going to come back to it. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So his little happy dance turned into like the sulking again. Like what? Unfair, where'd the tree go? Make matters worse, verse 8. The worm comes up, attacks it, falls down, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Have you ever been in the Middle East desert? And We had a hot summer, but it's hot in the Middle East desert. We went to Israel a few years ago. It is hot. It'd be like sitting out in the desert at noon. The wind blows. It's almost like they got like a blow dryer on high in your face at the same time. You're like, man, this is a scorcher. So then Jonah goes back to chapter 2. He thinks his life is ebbing away again, right? And so he goes back to the whole routine. Not fair. Not what I wanted. Don't like it. I think it's better for me to die than to live. Wow. I read this and I'm like, man, Jonah is like an emotional teenage... Spoiled, I was gonna say girl, but a boy, girl, isn't he? Wait for it because you're gonna see how this applies to us. Wait for it. Like one minute he's happy thinking God loves him and all in the world as well, next minute he's angry thinking that God doesn't love him, he may as well die. Oh God, everything's going the way I want, the way I think it should, so you're so awesome, you love me, yay! Let's have a little party. Moment things go a little bit off and things turn the way he doesn't think it should, it's like, oh God, who do you think you are? Like, How come you're so mean to me? You mean, you mean, you, you hate me. Why did I just die? Why would you even have me in the first place? If you have teenagers, you've heard that recently. More humbling though is this, as I read this. Didn't just happen out of my lips when I was a teenager. (laughs) Happens out of my lips and in my heart far more than I like to admit to you guys today. This whole idea that somehow God exists for me As long as things are going good, then I'm good with God. As long as as soon as things go bad, then, then God's not on my side anymore. I can do whatever I want. And, and yet, how, how, how foolish we, we look at this and we're like, are you kidding me, Jonah? I even look at my own heart. I'm like, am I, am I kidding myself? Where in the world did this come from that God is here for me, not me here for God? Who does Jonah think he is? Who do we think we are when we come up to God and tell God what he's going to do with our lives and what our plans and what our purposes are that he's got to somehow bless and join up with? Again, though, verse 9, now you're thinking, now now finally God's going to, you know, we expected God's going to bring the heat on Nineveh. God's going to bring the heat on Jonah. Does God bring the heat again? No, what does he do? He's so gracious. I can't believe how patient God is. You know, again, if this is my my kid, I've already flown off the handle and told them what for and sent them to their room and to write out lines or whatever. You know what I mean? And yet God in his grace, it's encouraging to me because I realize I'm more like Jonah again than, than you see and probably that you're more like Jonah than you want me to see. But it's encouraging. This is encouraging to me that God is still gracious with Jonah. You know what he says in verse 9? He just simply asks the question again. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Like, wow. So composed. So to the point. Jonah's answer? Of course I do. I'm angry enough to die. Like, there's just no reasoning with someone like that, is there? We've all seen that person. We've all been that person. But then the Lord takes us to a teachable moment. And here's the point of really the whole book. The Lord said this, I'm sure with a bit of a scratching of the head, I'm sure with a bit of a, I was hoping you would have got this by now, Jonah. But he simply says this, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which, and it came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who ultimately were going to miss heaven and miss God and go to hell? Really, Jonah, did you plant the plant? Did you care for it? Did you put some sweat in the game? Of course not. You had no part in it. What right do you have in determining its fate? I gave it. I can take it away. But here's a deeper question. How can you, Jonah, be so passionate about a plant and so apathetic towards Nineveh? How can you be so passionate about a plant and so apathetic towards Nineveh? How can you be consumed with your own purposes over what I have planned for your life and the people around you? It's a question that goes straight to the heart, isn't it? See what God's doing here? Here's what God's simply doing. It comes from the Bible knowledge commentary. It says it much better than I do. Here's what God's doing here. God wants Jonah to see that he has no right to be angry over Nineveh or the vine. Why? Because Jonah did not give life to or sustain either of them. Nor was he sovereign over them. He had no control of the plants, growth, or withering. The vine, in fact, was quite temporal. It sprang up overnight and died overnight and was of relatively little value. Yet Jonah grieved over it backwards, whereas Jonah had no part in making the plant grow. God created the Ninevites. They were of value to him. Jonah's affections were distorted. He cared more for a vine than for human lives. He cared more for personal comfort, the Bible knowledge commentary says, than for the spiritual destiny of thousands of people. Is describing Jonah, or just describing us? Ask yourself the very important question today: Do I know the heart and the purposes of God? Or am I living my Christian life like a spoiled teenager who's only happy if I get my own way and not happy if I don't? Chapter 4 is this. It's God reminding Jonah that he's in charge and his purposes matter most. Who's in charge of Jonah? Who's in charge? God. Who's in charge of Nineveh? God's in charge of Nineveh. What matters most? What God wants is what matters most. He's really saying, who are you, Jonah? Who do you think you are to know what's best for a plant or what's best for a, a people? You don't even know what's best for yourself, my son. God to Jonah, you're not in charge. If if I want to place a plant and take it away in your life, so be it. If If I want to extend my grace to the nations around you, so be it. If I desire to spare a city from destruction, it's up to me. It's my purposes that matter, not yours. Here's Jonah's lesson he needs to learn. Jonah's goal needs to be in life this. To look to God to ask for his heart, to see his purposes, and simply trust, obey, and surrender that he'd be used mightily of God in this lifetime. That's it. We don't have a story in the same way if Jonah would have just from the beginning just simply humbled himself and trusted and obeyed and surrendered. He would have saved himself a lot of pain. He has no joy, clearly. There's no joy in Jonah's Christian faith. He would, he'd have some joy in the Christian faith because that's where joy comes from in submitting and surrendering and doing things God's way, not ours. And we have a whole different little prophet before us. Jonah's so opposite of Jesus, isn't he? Jonah foreshadows Jesus in some ways, belly of a fish, three nights, rose, sprung forth, preached, saved, yet he's so unlike Jesus in other ways. Think Jesus. Jesus was the one who came with perfect submission to the Father. He came from heaven down to earth. Why did he come? To do God's will and accomplish God's will for his life and our lives. Jesus came fully submitted to God. God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to preach? And we're thankful he did because it took him to the cross, to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. And it's Jesus that is who our example is. Not Jonah. Our goal is to be like Jesus, not like Jonah. We exist for God, He doesn't exist for us. It's important to get today. God has a right to do whatever he decides in our lives and the lives of those around us. This is the story of Jonah, and God has good purposes for us and for those around us. It's time for us to give up our place on the throne and stop talking back to God and planning our lives and deciding how God's going to do what he's going to do through us and simply surrender and say, God, take my life. I want it to be yours that your glory would shine through me. Yes, God do things for me, but most importantly, do things through me for the glory of your name. This whole book is about God's sovereign and divine purposes for all people. And he has a purpose for us that's far greater than any purpose we can come up with on our own. He's got a plan for our lives that's far greater than any plan that we could conjure up in our spare time. What's God's purpose and what's God's plan? That we'd have God's heart and we'd be his vessels of grace in the world around us. It's plain and simple. Let me ask you this. Are you getting his point? Through Jonah, are you getting his point? I pray we are because I pray that God will protect us from being like Jonah. Please, God, don't let us be like Jonah. Jonah's so... Interested in the superficial, he's missing out on the eternal. He's so interested in the temporal, he's missing out on the forever. It's not just a wayward prophet that gets consumed with the here and now over the forever. Our culture is all about what we can get, what pleasure we can get, what stuff we can accumulate. It's easy to become, to come into a place where we, well, we can talk about God's heart, we can sing about God's heart, we can have great discussions with other Christians about God's heart, but we miss God's heart. Why? Because we're so consumed with our bank accounts, the temporal, we're so consumed with our houses and our cars, and our jobs and our businesses. In essence, all we're doing is looking at the plant and missing out on the people. Even in churches, we can be like this. In churches, so consumed with the programs and all the things we're going to do. We want to do this. We want to do this. One want to this gathering and that gathering and all the gatherings we're going to have and have these little holy huddles everywhere that we miss out on the heart of God. What a travesty. It's not funny. Why is God so quick? to give compassion to people that don't deserve it because there's heaven and there's hell at stake for people's lives. This isn't a quick little like, oh, well, that's a good little talk. Well, I didn't know that about Jonah before. This is a like, wow, God, well, what do you want to impact me about in this sermon that I might not go out of here and not just live Monday to Saturday like the rest of the world and come in Sunday for an hour and do a nice little worship thing and go out like normal. But God, how can this impact me that I can be like Jonah not like Jonah, but like Jesus and give myself for the kingdom of God. Because in the end, if we have it all up here and not up here, not only do we miss out on our mission, we probably miss out on God totally. Are you too busy arguing with God about the superficial things in your life that you're missing the purposes of God for the world around you? The God I wish I had, the God I want you for this or for that, the God I think you need to do this or whatever. We're so busy trying to boss God around that we miss out on his great purposes for our lives. Yes, God cares about superficial things, but he's about more than just the the bare necessities of our needs. God, his heart is always for people. His heart is always for people. And his heart is that our heart is always for people. Even the people we like the least and we think that they're never going to respond to God, his heart is that we are for those people. Am I like Jonah or am I like Jesus? What if your life goes nothing like the way you think it should, but God arranges it in a way that he'll use you for his glory in the lives of others? you okay with that? you okay with that? What if God calls you to full-time ministry and to give up some of the comforts that you have in your lavish paying job and your comfort life? So he calls you a full-time ministry. Will you go? What, what if God calls you to sell things here to go and move somewhere else to bring the gospel to other people? Would you be willing to do it? Or are you so caught up in the comfort of things that you're missing out on the purpose of things? God did call us all to serve Him with all of our hearts here within the church, within the community, with the purpose of sharing Jesus. Am I on that plan or am I not? Will I trust God with my life regardless of whether it makes sense to me or it doesn't? Will I let God be God in my life or I try to control Him and His purposes and His ways? question that you have to wrestle with deep down in your own soul. It's a question to not be taken lightly. It's a question that God's just not going to let sit on your heart for weeks and months on end. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's too much at stake for the kingdom of God. Father, give us a heart for people more than plants. For the eternal more than the temporal. This is God's heart. It's not just some preacher making this stuff up. This is God's heart for you and for I. Get on this page. We will find the fullness of joy in Christian life. We get off this page, and we're going to be like Jonah, this miserable, grumpy, Eking through life, Christian life. I'm going to serve God if I have to. That's not the way God intended it. God wants us to be a a joyful, life-giving adventure with him as we seek his face and we seek to be used of him. And ultimately, look at this. Look at this last verse. This kind of summarizes it all together for us, this whole book. In the end, God's goodness will always come through. It's God's heart. This is, this is the heart of God. God is a God of compassion and a God of pity for those who are lost and needing Him. Why should we not think God's not going to have pity on Nineveh? And should I not? Like, this is a question. Should I not have pity on Nineveh? Like, are you thinking straight? Should I not have pity on those around you? Should I not want to use your life for my purposes and those around you? Think of what's what's really going on here. There's 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that there are 120,000 people that were like, I don't know, I'm just not smart enough to know what's right and what's left. It was 120,000 people who were so morally blinded and morally confused. They didn't know what way was right and what way was wrong. They didn't know up and down in a spiritual sense, and a moral sense. And they were in this hemmed in, overrun with sin so much. They couldn't even see their way out. They had no idea they were even in sin. That's how desperately in need they were of God. 120,000 adults with kids, probably 300,000 people. A little smaller than the Niagara region. How can God, if he's so full of grace and compassion and mercy, just sit up in heaven and ignore this? The answer is he can't. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he's called you and I to get in on his mission for the world around us because God longs to use our lives to free people from the bondage of sin and help them see the glory of a savior. God wants to use us to change people around us as we preach the message of Jesus and let his Holy Spirit work because God is ultimately a God of mercy and compassion. And he's looking constantly for ways to show his mercy and compassion to the world that so desperately needs him. It's kind of weird how this thing ends, isn't it? It just leaves us with this thought that God cares more deeply about people than we could ever know. It ends with a strong statement of God's perfect character. It shows us how big God's heart really is. This whole book was about God's heart for the lost. God's heart for his own. Love how it starts with God coming to Jonah with a word. It ends with who gets the last word always. Who always gets the last word? That's it. I love how it starts with Jonah just doing his thing. God comes to him, like, I got a word for you. How it ends with a question, like, I get the last word, I speak last. Ends with the question mark. We don't hear from Jonah again. We don't know what Jonah's response was to the question. We don't know if it changed his life or not. But it leaves us to ponder the same thing that God left Jonah to ponder with. It leads us to ponder and then contemplate, where is my own heart in following God wherever he leads and doing whatever he says? Am I willing to follow or will I run? Am I willing to allow God to put his heart in me? Or am I going to be walking through this life trying to tell God what my heart ought to be for him? Ultimately, we see in the end here that God's going to get the deal done. Whether we choose to get on side or not, God's going to get her done. But what his greatest desire is is that we would be Holy, yielded and submitted to him that he would do it through us for our joy and his glory. Am I going to be like Jonah? Or am I going to be like Jesus? Thankfully, God's grace covers us in all of it, right? But am I going to be like Jonah? Or am I going to be like Jesus? Am I going to be like Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 4? Remember those two chapters? He's running, he's angry, he's a prophet but not really doing the prophet thing, calling himself a prophet. Or maybe like Jonah chapter two and three where he's worshiping and he's available for God's purposes and he's preaching and he's being obedient and submissive to the will of God. If nothing else in this whole series, I pray simply this. You see the overwhelming grace of God, a God that pursues us, And that you in turn would be men and women, boys and girls who would want to go out of this place and have the heart and the purposes of God to also pursue those around you with the glory of the gospel. Jesus or Jonah? Jesus or Jonah? Let's pray that God will allow us all to be reflections of Jesus Christ as we live for his glory. Father, thank you so much for your living and active word. God, we recognize that sometimes the word of God just floods over us and soothes, uh, soothes us and, and brings us uh, to this refreshment place in our lives. And other times the word of God comes over us and it, is, it, it reminds us of truth and it's not always comfortable, but it's, it's good for us and we need it, Lord. God, this is one of those messages from the book of Jonah. It's one that we need to hear more often than we'd like to admit. That, God, we confess today that we are self-centered, wishy-washy, sinful men and women. Not just in need of your grace for heaven, God, but in need of your grace every day to live, to see the heart of God, to, to live the heart of God, and to be your vessels here on this earth. God, we need you for this. God, I pray today that you would help us, Lord, get beyond our own agendas, get beyond our own purposes and surrender ourselves to whatever you want for us in this life and in the world around us. God, would you give us a heart and a burden that the world around us might see the true fullness of the compassion and the grace and the mercy of our God. May we not be content sitting on the sidelines or running the other way, but God, would we be fully engaged in the mission you have for us as individuals and as a church. Protect us, Lord, from complacency. Protect us from thinking that this Christian life is about anything other than about for you, God. Help us to once again see that we exist for you. You don't exist for us. And help us live in proper this proper relationship with you. Help us, God. We need your heart. We need your burden. We need your love. We need your courage. We need your boldness. We need your urgency. We need you, Jesus. May this not be lost on any of our hearts today. And may you use it to spur us on for your kingdom in this coming week and month and year. In Jesus' name, amen.